The following is a podcast from Ballin Entertainment. Hello, it's Craig Thompson, and this is the Stratford Slice. On today's episode, we meet the author who's turned his experience with foster care into a learning experience for Indigenous children. People in my generation, when we were growing up, our only encounter with what we call Indigenous culture was through the Cowboys and Indians movies that we saw from Hollywood. We could dress up as Indians uh, for Halloween, buy the feathers, headdress, get the plastic tomahawks, and we would play cowboys and Indians as well. And the Indians would, for the most part, um, be the losers in any battles that we had, which is a sad thing to say. And it was really only until I uh, became an adult that I became aware, well, here we are in Stratford and we're surrounded by Indigenous uh, culture and heritage, but we had no exposure, nothing whatsoever to even learn about the indigenous uh, people who whose land this was uh, before European colonization. So last year on the first uh, National Truth and Reconciliation Day, I had the pleasure of uh, attending a ceremony where I heard a speaker by the name of Sean Lyons uh, he's an author. He's from St. Mary's. He's an advocate. He's just an all-round uh, interesting guy, and I wanted to welcome you to the show today, Sean Lyons. Thank you very much. Uh, the honor is mine. So tell me about when you first discovered your own Indigenous heritage. When I was adopted at the age of four, I was told by the agency that I was Indigenous, but they didn't know anything more than that. And it took many, many years of searching to find out who I was. I was lucky enough to find an old photograph that had come with me uh, in my adoption, and they had whited out the information on the back. So with a thumbnail and some effort, I was able to scratch that off. I found out my last name. I looked through the phone book, started calling those last names, managed to connect with an aunt. The aunt was able to give me some information. Through her, I could meet my grandparents, my father, and so on. And But then it kind of went cold. Uh, so years later, I started to search that name out across Ontario to see if I could find obituaries or grave markings or family members. And I stumbled across an obituary from my grandfather's second wife, reached out to the family and was able to get all the information I needed to find out who I was, where I belonged, where I had come from, all the inf- all the stuff that I believe the agencies should have recorded at the time, but didn't. So, But I was able to do it. I had a a job where I was a recruiter, so finding information um, that doesn't want to be found became a skill of mine, so I was able to overcome the roadblocks. So what is your Indigenous heritage? Which tribe, which area, which nation, and what geographic area did you learn, of course, and what's your what was your birth name, your Indigenous birth name? So I was uh, Sean Chose. Uh Chose comes from the um, Anishinaabe Algonquin of Kitagon Zibi. There are a lot of Choseis up there. I've just recently be- begun to connect with uh, my fellow Algonquins up on uh, Kitagon Zibi, but our territory was uh, sort of Qu- Quebec, Ontario. But Kitagon Zibi is now right beside Manawaki, about an hour north of Ottawa. So that's where you were born? Uh, no, actually, my uh, my grandfather left the reserve. He went to fight in World War II. And at the time, if you leave to fight in the war, you lose your status. So he had lost his status, wasn't able to return, 
had his family outside of the reserve in Quebec and then moved to Cambridge. He wasn't able to get his status again until later when they had overturned that. So I wasn't born on the reserve, but that's where my family does come from. Cambridge, Ontario. Uh, I, yeah, I was born in Cambridge, but the family originally came from Kittagong, CB. Right. And at what age were you adopted and what were the circumstances of that? I was four years old. Uh, shortly, four days before my fifth birthday, I was actually placed in my adoptive home. Um, wonderful parents, wonderful family that I was placed into. Non-Indigenous, however. The issues, if you will, intergenerational trauma is a very difficult thing to overcome, even with all of the knowledge and the skills you might need to do so. My father had been an abuse victim, as my grandfather had been an abuse victim. As a result, it was very difficult for them to really capture what it means to be a parent, what sacrifices are required, what behavior you need to follow. And when trauma haunts you and you've never been able to heal from it, you can then transfer that onto your children and you're unable to be what you need to be. And at the time, agencies were really big on the Euro-Canadian version of what a family looks like and how one must behave within that family system. And Indigenous culture does it very differently. And even in the case of my parents, um, they weren't following the traditional Indigenous way, nor were they lined up with the Euro-Canadian way, so we were removed as a result of... We, you say we. There was my brother and my sister as well. We were removed from their care and placed in foster care, <clears throat> and uh, we were never returned home. And uh, subsequent adoptive homes were found for us. Did you lose touch with your parents? Did you reconnect? Did you uh, have you found your brothers and sisters? Where are you at with that uh, in your your journey? My sister was adopted with me. My brother was adopted into a different family. I was able to through reaching through the phone book, finding family. I was able to reconnect with my brother. I didn't find my birth parents until later in life, I had carried a lot of bitterness and anger towards them, um, feelings that I've since worked through knowing how intergenerational trauma works. I had briefly reconnected with both before they had passed away. So I was able to get some questions answered and just kind of find out a little bit about who I was and where I'd come from. And where were they at the time that you finally reconnected with them in Cambridge or somewhere else? My mother was in Windsor and my father had moved out to uh, BC and had started a new life out there. And you were raised in St. Mary's? I was raised in Waterloo. My, both my adoptive parents are anthropology professors. They've both since retired, but uh, we were raised in Waterloo near the universities. They retired and moved out to Toronto, and they now in their retirement travel quite a bit, Mexico and England and overseas and whatnot. And uh, um, I don't love to go into Toronto, um, but I do to see my parents, and they will come visit me as well. So uh, what did they uh, give you in terms of uh, acceptance of your indigenous uh, culture. Did they work with you on that as you were growing up? Were you aware what what happened with that? So my parents were some of the are some of the most open minded, loving, caring people you'll ever meet. They were all for pride rights, Black Lives Matter before they were really big movements at the time. I had learned about human beings first. All the secondary things that people use against each other. Mm can often be benefits. Someone from a different culture has something to teach us as we have something to teach others. And um, as a result, they didn't either know much about my indigenous heritage, but they said, whoever you are, whatever you are, you have our 100% support to discover that. There were no limitations. There was no pressures. It was, you know, if you choose a particular creed or if you identify with a certain group of people, we support that 100%. So I think that was really helpful that they gave me that free space to, to find myself. 
Are you a child of the 1970s or 80s? 70s. So even though you were in the 70s, you're part of what was called the 60s scoop. Can you explain? Yeah. So um, it's a period actually between about 51 to 91 where Indigenous children were systematically removed from their families, sometimes for simple reasons as the diet that Indigenous people had wasn't what lined up with Euro-Canadian views of acceptable diets or certain practices, certain uh, children are living with aunt for a week and then grandma and grandpa for a week and then to an uncle. And it didn't fit in with that nuclear, you need a mom and a dad to take care of you. We were more of a community raises a child than a mom and dad alone raises a child. Those as well as several other reasons were why Indigenous children would be removed, fearing that these Indigenous families did not know how to raise their children and then placed in non-Indigenous homes where they would be raised properly. And I put my fingers up in quotations as I say that believing that the Euro-Canadian version of how things are done is the most important. And tell me why parents didn't have a choice in that decision when children were were scooped, so to speak. They weren't living up to the standard. And if you, it, if I were to describe it, it would feel a lot like, here are the hoops you need to jump through in order to maintain your family as it is. If you don't jump through those hoops, we remove your children, we find new homes for them. And there's not a lot that parents could do to fight back against that, especially when there's that culture difference and that intergenerational trauma of governments and agencies systematically pulling apart the Indigenous way of life. So when did you start putting your thoughts down on paper? You're now the author of several books. You have two, I guess you could say, lines. You've got the children's book series, but you're also involved in writing science fiction. But let's talk about the children's books. Was that started mainly to help you through your own um, uh, reconnection with the trauma you went through? Actually, it started um, an elder who I respect greatly. She had come to me and said, I have been waiting for you for 20 years. I said, what does that mean? I have been looking for an Indigenous person who is an author who has been through the child welfare system to write books for our children still in care. And of course, whether I wanted to do it or not, if an elder asks you to do something in our culture, you do it. So, and when I do something, I do it a thousand percent. I don't, it's not a hobby, it's my passion. So I set out to write Little Bear in Foster Care, which I based on my own experiences in care. I wanted to give to the children in the same place I once was some answers and some hope. I wanted to build a bridge across those crocodile-infested waters that I had to swim through so they wouldn't necessarily have to swim through that. If I could help them overcome some of the pitfalls I fell into, they might not have the same level of trauma, and they might be able to rise up and do even greater things than I'll ever do. Right. So this is an illustrated ch children's book. It's it's rather brilliantly illustrated. And just uh, it's also bilingual. So tell me about the languages in the book. So the traditional language of the Anishinaabe people is uh, Anishinaabe Moen, and I wanted it in dual language. Um, part of my fear is that oftentimes Indigenous children in a non-Indigenous social work, a foster care system, may have very little to no exposure to Indigenous culture. So this book had it in dual language so that they could get a flavor for what our traditional language was. At the end of the book, there's actually three teachings. It talks about the traditional circle, the talking feather, and it talks about smudging. And these are traditional practices for Indigenous peoples. My hope is that it plants a seed of interest in these children that they want to learn more about their Indigenous culture. Worst case, if they never get any further exposure, at least they have some of the basics in this book. So do you believe there's a disconnect uh, with young Indigenous children who might have been through foster care with 
their culture, or are we seeing kind of a re, more of an interest in bringing them closer to their birth culture? It's it's a bit of a mixed bag. So there are several children who might feel disconnected. I'm Indigenous, yet I'm in a world that isn't. And they may often be racialized or feel like being Indigenous is somehow less, become ashamed of it, and not want anything to do with it. I've unfortunately met some Indigenous people that don't care at all about being Indigenous. And for me, when I go into circles with, I do a lot of speaking for schools. And when I speak to the kids, I show them how proud I am to be Indigenous, that yes, I was that Indigenous person in a non-Indigenous school, in a non-Indigenous world. But for me, to connect to that identity really gave me a sense of value and purpose. So what I could have used as shame, I turned into a unique quality for myself. So my hope is to say to these kids, unfortunately, you might be in a foster home that loves you to pieces but doesn't know how to support your indigeneity. They don't have to necessarily, but there's a community around you that is happy to come in and help to show you how good it is to be proud of yourself. So give me an example in the book that might have been drawn from your own personal experience and how you've interpreted that in in the book. So I think the biggest one is the feelings and the communication. When I was in care, I asked all the big questions. Where's my family? What happened? Why am I here? Am I going home? And nobody would answer my questions. And I wonder if it's because they thought I was too young to understand. If someone had said to me, your parents are having a really hard time taking care of you right now. We're working with them to see if they can get to that place. If not, we're going to have to find you a new home. Might have been hard to hear, but it would have given me something. So In this book, it talks about Little Bear, the fears he has. He's wondering where his family's gone. He's wondering what's happened. He has a traditional circle where he can sit with his family and his community, and they answer his questions, and they walk with him, so he never has to feel disconnected. Something I really wish had existed when I was in care, but since it didn't, I wanted to create it so it would exist now so the kids could have that, and they could know. They could ask for their circle. I want a circle with my family and my community. I have been a part of several circles for community members, children in care, as their sort of stand-in community uncle. And I've advocated for them and fought for their rights, and I will continue to do that as part of the community, as a way to give back to these kids that were, that are in the place I was, and I had nobody advocating for me. How many years were you in foster care before being adopted into the family that raised you? Um, the agencies were involved with us pretty early on, but I was actually in care for about two years. I had moved around to several foster homes. The last foster home I was in was very, was a very abusive foster home. And the scariest part of that wasn't even the abuse itself. It was when I would report the abuse, nobody would hear me, nobody would believe me. And then the abuse would get worse as a result of reporting it. So you tell a worker, this is what's happening in the home. The worker tells the foster parents, they become meaner. So you realize very quickly, you have no voice, nobody cares, nobody hears you. So I wanted to be sure that these children knew they had a voice and that they had advocates. So at what age were you when you went into the family that raised you? I was uh, almost five. Uh, I was on Christmas Eve, and my birthday is December 29th, so it was December 24th, the evening of I was placed in their home. So your memories of that time and before that, they won't be totally clear, but they're enough to give you that experience that you can relay some of your thoughts as an adult, I would imagine. Absolutely. I do have some very vivid memories of the past, and I've learned that trauma has a way of, of really capturing the moment with extra clarity. And in my case, it, it's been for a, um, a protective factor in the future. So early on, I learned uh, people can't be trusted. People are dangerous. The world is dangerous. It's been something I've had to slowly undo into adulthood, but it makes me really aware of my surroundings. Who's safe? Who isn't? Is this environment safe? Is it not? And it's from that time. 
And it's a very difficult thing to shake when during your formative years you're learning nobody's safe. My home isn't a secure place. My environment could change at any moment and it could be a very dangerous thing. And during a time when most kids are sleeping in their beds, playing with their friends, watching TV, hanging out with their families, I'm stuck in a place that caused me more anxiety and depression than I even had in my teen years. Something that no three, four-year-old should ever have to deal with. You're listening to The Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. Check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. And now, back to the show. Now, you mentioned it was an elder who said we're looking for someone to, to share these stories, but not anyone, regardless of the culture, can sit down and write a book. You obviously had some good education. Your parents were both anthropologists, so there was a lot of influence there. What did you do after high school in terms of education and career? I'll be honest, I didn't like high school very much. Um, it was the social aspect I was interested in. I just found school very boring and irrelevant. Not that it is, it's just I felt that way in my own life. So after high school, I had something to prove. I wanted to climb the corporate ladders, so I got really good jobs. I worked three times as hard as the next guy, moved up to sales managers, district managers. Um, I've been contracted by companies to help them grow. I've done a lot of high-level... In what field? Like what industries? Sales. Everything from uh, ADT security to e-waste recycling to... Uh, water treatment, uh, right. a whole gamut. I wanted a, a, a thick resume of experience so I could walk into a company and say, I know what I have to offer. I want to know why this would be a good fit. And for me, it was important that the products and services be uh, honorable. I don't want to lie or cheat or steal. I will stand behind a product I believe in, and then I will position it that way. So it had to have integrity. And I had had some great jobs due to some friends that had helped me along the way, really took a, a liking to me. I got to a point where I thought, I've achieved this. I've shown the world that I can still be somebody. The vice principal of my elementary school told me I was a loser and I would never amount to anything. So I had something to prove to myself that if he was still in that position, I'd love to walk into his office and say, hey, you know what? I don't want, I'm, I'm not here to be angry with you, but I just want to say thank you for those motivational words because they really helped me want to show the world that I can be and will be something amazing despite what happened. And when you're in sales, you have to be a good communicator. So your writing uh, and communication skills, how did that help you when you sat down to write not only just these books, but your science fiction books? So my parents are both anthropologists. My mother had um, an English degree prior to being an anthropologist. So as you can imagine, from the age of five on, every grammatical mistake I would make, she'd be on me immediately. I was actually very shy as a child, even into my early teen years. If I had to do a presentation in front of the class, I would rather fail the class than do that. I was very shy. Um, but then there, there came a point where I actually got a job. I'd oversold myself for this sales management job. And I said, yes, I can do this. I can, I can rally troops. I can get them out selling. I can. And I got put on the spot. We went to a, a convention in Toronto, and there was about 600 salespeople in a room. My boss said to me, do what you do, go in there and pump them up. Well, immediately my mouth goes dry, my hands start shaking because I hadn't really had this experience. So I got up in front of them and about half an hour of pumping them up, they went out, their sales were through the roof, he was impressed. And then I realized I can do this. I didn't think I could, but I can. So as a result, I decided that I have a lot I want to work through. I have a lot I want to say. How do I do it? So I took my experiences, and I put them into a fantasy series. It started at the age of three when I was in care. I realized nobody's safe. This place isn't safe. Every morning I wake up, I'm immediately hit with the anxiety and depression of my situation. I retreated into my mind, and I started to create. 
I first created a warrior who would protect me from everything that was happening. Then I created a tower that I would hide inside and the warrior would guard the door and not let anybody in. Then I placed the tower on a planet that was protected by airplanes and tanks and mazes. And then I duplicated the planet trillions of times and hid it in the fog of space so nobody could ever hurt me again. As my life improved, I got adopted, went to school and did all the things that I did. That world continued to build itself and it continued to be a safe place for me to go and hide when life wasn't so great. Then I had enough material. I thought I'm going to write a book. I'm actually going to take this and I'm going to put it in a book. It's going to be a place where I can get revenge where you can't in real life, where I can get closure where I couldn't in real life and really work through this stuff. And so I began to write the Drux series and I poured my soul into it edited it several times, had a few professional edit editors go through it, became very popular. And as a result, I created the Drux series around the first book. And it is sort of a little something for everybody, if you will. It's got action, adventure, romance, tragedy, triumph, um, everything. And it was, if I have done nothing else in my life, creating this series has given me a real sense of purpose. So in addition to writing that stuff, are you pursuing a sales career still? Or are you relying mostly on your motivational speaking? How do you spend your uh, your days? I kind of, uh, I keep the door open depending on what opportunities come through. Uh, I love writing. I love the speaking. And so uh, I guess my main income source is the writing and, this, and the, the speaking. But again, I'm always open if there were some great opportunity to take what I'm doing to the next level or to really impact a group or to do something really positive, I would take a serious look at it for sure. And how did you end up in St. Mary's? I mean, I mentioned earlier in the program that I didn't even know you were around until Lorena McKennett uh, had you at the first uh, National Truth and Reconciliation Day, and you were speaking at that event. And I said, who is this? Oh, he lives in St. Mary's. How did you end up in St. Mary's? You've been there for a while. What's the What's the connection? Uh, How did you get there? I have been dying to get a country property since I bought my first property downtown Kitchener where I had no yard, tons of noise, tons of neighbors. And it took a long time to get to that point. I got lucky that my wife got a transfer to a new job in Stratford. And I'd never looked out in this area for a home before. And I stumbled across this property in St. Mary's that was exactly what I was looking for under my price bracket. And I jumped on it right away. So I said to my wife, I'm like, well, just put an offer in on a house. So you, you know, this job better really pan out for us. And I couldn't be happier. It's everything I've wanted. So I, and then of course I, I started to plant roots in the community. Stratford's obviously right nearby, connecting with the indigenous community, with allies alike. And I've met some wonderful people and some big doors have opened up for me as a result of coming out this way. So I'm very grateful for that. And do you have kids? I do. I have five children. So I want to ask you about that. First of all, how old are they? So my oldest is 26. I had her when I was quite young. And then my next four are uh, 16. He's almost 17, 14, 11, and 9. So your own experience of not knowing really your birth family and growing up in foster care and adoptive care, how has that changed the way you were a parent? That's an amazing question. That's one of the things I put into my speaks. Um, having... It's actually been my wife who really helped open some of these doors. As a social worker, she understood early childhood trauma. She understood intergenerational trauma and how that worked. I had no idea of those things. And when one does not have an idea of the patterns, they might be doomed to repeat those patterns. As a result, and a lot of self-reflection, I realized a lot. Of, what happened to me wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. I blamed myself. <clears throat> I obviously was a bad kid, and that's how I ended up in care. I was bullied as a as, as a child in school. It was obviously my fault. And then I realized... 
that wasn't my fault. The trauma I endured wasn't my fault. My response to that trauma wasn't my fault. So I had an opportunity to do a lot of self-reflecting, a lot of healing. And when I had children, I decided I am not going to allow those intergenerational chains to land on my children. I'm going to be the kind of father that anyone would want. So I'm very involved in their lives, uh, very affectionate, spend time with them, try and learn what's cool for them. I play video games with them, but I'm terrible compared to them. Um, but they have a happy home, a loving, stable home. There's been no agency involvements, no police involvements, no nothing that would disrupt their lives. They are happy. They are content. They love us as parents very much. And I say they're probably the first in a long generation to love their father. And that means a lot to me. If I have broken the intergenerational chains in my own family, then my life has served another amazing purpose. What have you imparted upon them about their indigenous heritage? I assume your wife's not indigenous. She's not, no, but, but my children are. Yeah. They have status. And um, what, what, how have they accepted or embraced that? Uh, some people, as you said earlier, don't care. Other people care. How do your children, maybe they're all different, but how do they in general uh, uh, accept and embrace their indigenous heritage? My older two love it and um, are taking language classes, really. They've gotten involved in some of the local indigenous communities around them. Obviously, they come to me for information. I'm actually a grandfather now. My oldest has a little girl. Um, they named her Zoe. I named her Sokanan, which means rain, because she is the rain that washes away the old and brings in new life as a way to kind of clean up some of the past pains. My younger three are, they're, they're more into video games and hanging out with their friends than anything at this point. They're teenagers, are they? The younger three, 9, 11, and 14. Okay, yeah. uh, not quite teens, yeah. although my nine-year-old daughter would like to think she is. But they have always been told about the history and what happened, um, who we are, where we come from, and why we should be proud of that. So they're not approaching it with any kind of shame. Yes, we live in a community that doesn't have a huge indigenous um, presence, but I've told them there are schools you could attend. Uh, there's benefits to the communities and what they have to offer. So be proud of who you are, no matter what that is, no matter what that looks like. And the, although the younger ones are still kind of like, ah, I just want to hang out with my friends, I'm getting a sense that they really feel like this will be something in their journey one day that matters to them. And that means a lot to me. There's been a lot of public uh, trauma uh, in the media over the last few years, uh, stemming from the residential schools. We've had the papal uh, apology, the Pope coming, all, law, all Truth and Reconciliation Commission, all this kind of stuff. Um, it's a heavy weight uh, to bear. Where are we going with that? Well, we're still in the truth part of Truth and Reconciliation, because how does one reconcile if they don't know the truth? And what I, I see happening is with the truth, I am usually a cynical person, but I believe that if all Canadians got a true education on what happened with Indigenous people, the majority would say, I had no idea, how do we make this right? So with the truth coming out, you now get the fog removed. So you get two camps, those that are, we had no idea, or we had some idea, this wasn't okay, how do we fix it? And then the group that's sort of like, well, that was a long time ago, we don't care. And it, it sort of divides down the middle, but what it does is it at least lets Indigenous communities know who the allies are. And it lets everybody know what happened and why. So to say, I've heard so many times, what happened with Indigenous people was a long time ago. They should get over it already. Um, I've had trauma in my life, and I managed to overcome it. Why can't you? You know, some of these brush-off comments. And I say, okay, well, well, any anything that any question that's asked, 
is not an irrelevant question if you're genuinely looking for an answer. So what I would say to that is intergenerational trauma is a little bit different than just a, a traumatic event. Yes, trauma is not unique to indigenous culture. However, if you are part of a privileged society, chances are you have access to supports that don't necessarily exist in the indigenous communities. So you can get the help you need. You can get the supports, the medications, the counselings you need that we may not necessarily be able to have. And if you actually look at what happened, then it gives you a better perspective as to why we are where we are now. Are all indigenous people struggling? No, of course not. There's plenty of us that are doing amazing things, but any community is going to have a certain group of people that we should love on and care for rather than judge. We've got a studio dog here. That's the barking in the background, and uh, a little dog walked by, but she's been very quiet. Lulu. I love the bow that you've got on the top. She of just had her, um, her um, spa treatment last week. She's got her summer summer, summer haircut. So, um, Yeah, and also, we have a lot to learn from Indigenous culture, and I'm wondering, you know, we're talking about the environment and respect for the land and all that kind of stuff. Do you see hope? Uh, coming out of this increased awareness and knowledge of, of, of indigenous culture, because put it bluntly, we're screwing up our world. You know, I, I think about that a lot off actually. Um, capitalism is this sort of idea that we could all be rich and we will make as much profit as we can off of whatever we can at whatever cost. I know that might sound a little extreme, but as a basis of kind of how we got here, the indigenous way, if I were to sort of paint a simple picture, um, if I was a hunter, I would hunt for food, for enough food for the tribe. That's my job. Everybody eats. If I was a capitalist Indian, mm -hmm. I would hunt for the meat. The meat is mine. I would sit on it till everybody's starving, and then I would take that to... And sell it at the highest price. <laughs> sell it to the, for as much stuff as I could possibly get. Yeah. But then all I've created is a pile of stuff I can't take with me when yeah. I go and a bunch of angry people. The sustainability is gone. Being able to say we need to protect what we have at the cost of profits may be at the root of some of the problems. You know, the, the air is bad. The water is bad. Why? Maybe we're overdoing it. Um, you know, the, the idea that an indigenous person would look at someone cutting down a, a whole forest to sell the wood for profit didn't make sense to us. Why would you take more trees than you need? Why would you take more food than you need? Why would you hunt more animals than you need? The idea of profit didn't really make a lot of sense. What is there to profit? If I bring meat home for the tribe and I need shoes, somebody makes shoes. If I need more arrows, somebody's making arrows. It's a community that works together within its means. I think the idea that I need more of or better than might have seeded some of these roots of how we've gotten to where we are now. What I see as a, a as a problem right now with the current, you know, acknowledgement that of the sins of the past is that people are for the most part, don't have a direct connection to Indigenous culture. Our connection right now is through the media, which is filled with all of this uh, trauma and the, the stories that are coming out. And then occasionally you are at an event or something, and then there's the, uh, the land acknowledgement. Uh, those are all well and good, but I don't think, like, you and I have known each other for about a year now, and uh, it, you really don't, you can't understand indigenous culture from the media or from land acknowledgements. You need to actually meet people and understand that, you know, they're living, breathing human beings. So how do we get to that point where, where oh, you're indigenous? Like, how do we get those, those relationships so people can, it's not just something distant 
I think that's a that's a there's a twofold answer there. The first one is there is I, I've heard from several people a fear of the indigenous community that I'm not going to the reserve because they don't like me there or um, uh, to say the wrong thing they're going to bonk me over the head and I don't want to take that risk. The uh, truth is. Um, the reserves are a community like anybody else. You show up, you can do your shopping, get your gas, have your meals, meet the community, and it's fine. Um, it, that stereotype needs to go that it's not a safe place to go. And the idea that we do need safe spaces in order to learn. So I could say that I might be, you know, not so good at certain areas of newer knowledge. Like, for instance, I don't necessarily have all the pronouns down or, or accurate yet. But my hope is if I made a mistake, somebody would gently correct me rather than bonk me over the head. And I think there's this fear that, well, I don't want to approach the indigenous subject because what if I say the wrong thing or use the wrong term and I get yelled at and I feel awful and I don't want anything to do with it anymore. We do need to create safe space for everybody to learn. That's kind of where it um, certainly comes from. There is actually a, a series on APTN First Contact that uh, introduces people who really kind of have some of those indigenous people need to get over it already attitudes and they introduce them into indigenous communities. They show them how they live, uh, some of the history, the Indian trust funds, what that's been all about. Not everybody is swayed at the end of the show, but the majority said, I have no idea. Hmm. I didn't know what happened. These are great people. The way they live is so wonderful. And I think that kind of exposure is helpful, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with go to a powwow, go to the reserve. If you're a genuine true ally or a co-conspirator is a, a term that I've heard floated around by, you've gone from ally to co-conspirator, so you're basically indigenous without being indigenous, like you're there, get involved in the communities. How can I help? What can I do? I want to help set up events. I want to, what do you need from me? Mm -hmm. I think the, the reconciliation problem we have is too many people will say, I am going to help you my way. And if you don't like it, I get, I get upset. Rather than saying, how do I help you with what you need? That is how reconciliation works. But it's the truth first. We have to understand what happened, why and how, uh, what oppressive systems still exist today that work against Indigenous people. How do we get everyone to, the, to an equal footing where everyone genuinely has the same opportunities and the same respect level across the board? And that's going to take some time. Well, as the result of that fortuitous meeting last year, you and I are now working on developing a children's animated children's series based on not just this book, but you have a whole series in your head that you want to expand about. Tell us a, a bit about that. Sure. So Little Bear in Foster Care is the first in a seven book series published through goodminds.com. It is seven different aspects of foster care using anthropomorphic animals that children can really relate to. Foster care isn't just a, you go into care, this is what happens and out you go. Sometimes siblings go into care. Sometimes you're returned home to family or to different family or you're adopted. Like there's a different approach every time with children. And the seven book series follows different animals through their different journeys in the system. And um, tentatively called Foster Friends, the TV series uh, will focus on Little Bear and his journey and a lot of the experiences he has, infusing in elders, teachings, traditions, medicines, and so on, with cameos from the characters from the other books, in hopes that the TV series, should it be extended into season two, three, four, we have enough material through seven books to really flesh out 
what this journey is all about and to let in not only Indigenous children, but non-Indigenous children who watch it, their caregivers, be them Indigenous or not, or someone like myself who's been through the system years ago, who sits down in front of this and learns and maybe can get a bit of healing by saying, yeah, your experience might not have been great, but look what's available now to these kids. And maybe if you can get a bit of healing through that. So I am super excited about this, uh, this project. And cross-cultural, you mentioned, I think it's very important as you, as you mentioned that non-Indigenous uh, children, because we talked earlier about how do we in, reinforce the relationship? Well, if the young generation can understand what 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 uh, what it's all about, then they'll have a better respect and understanding when they get older. When I talk to the kids or the teens, uh, when I do my speaks, they're already there. They get it. They support Indigenous lives, Black lives, the pride um, community. They've got it already. I've, I, and I'll often say that I bang my head off the wall a lot of times trying to educate some adults on the most simplest of concepts. The kids are already there. So, But to be able to say to a child, I have this friend Tommy at school. He's Indigenous. What does that mean? He's in foster care. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. I don't know how to be a friend because there's a difference there. But if, if the child is watching the show, oh, this is what it means for Tommy to be Indigenous. This is what it means for him to be in care. Now I understand I can be a better friend to Tommy and he might need me as a friend. So the exposure is this isn't just for Indigenous, it's for anyone and everyone, especially those who live here in, in uh, on Turtle Island, as we call it, or North America that are going to be uh, mixing in and around with Indigenous peoples and communities. To It's an opportunity to get the young ones to know about it first so it isn't strange later. So if people want to book you for a speaking engagement or you want to go into a school, how do they get in touch with you? How does that happen? Normally, it's through my website. I've got a, um, a, a tab for speaking, and I've got uh, a contact portfolio on there. I've got a whole list of references. My website's www.spjosephlyons.com. That's S-P-J-O-S-E-P-H-L-Y-O-N-S.com. And we'll post that on the on the website for the podcast as well. Thank you. And remind us, remind the listeners about your Druck series, where they can see that and what's, what's, in, what's in that series. Okay, the Druck series is a six-book fantasy series that follows a sort of generations. So you'll have somebody who has a child, the next book is about that child, and so on for six books until it's epic conclusion at the end. I won't give any spoilers. That is, um, you can find that on Amazon right now through my website. Um, I'm also going to be turning that series. I'm right in the process now of creating a graphic novel series based on the novels. So each novel is about 20 chapters. So you'll have 20 graphic novel series books to go along with the novels in case you're not a novel reader but love graphic novels. So there will be two mediums to be able to enjoy that series. And then this book, again, is called Little Bear in Foster Care, and it's available through goodminds.com. Also on my website, there's a tab directly to it as well. The second book in this series, Wolf Pup Misses His Pack, is has been officially released. Um, that's also available through Good Minds or on my website. So if you want to check out what happens to Wolf Pup following Little Bear, please do. Well, Sean, it's been great to uh, to have you on the program, the Stratford Slice, and I look forward to collaborating with you in the future on on this project. So, congratulations on your on your success, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. For more episodes, check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. The Stratford Slice is produced by Ballinran Entertainment, Southwestern Ontario's number one digital media studio. 
If you have a great story to tell and want to be on the podcast, please reach out to us through our website, thestratfordslice.com.